0: Well, we are very welcome to this episode of Amplify Archaeology and I'm delighted to be in the National Museum of Ireland with a Keeper of Irish Antiquities, Maeve Sakora, and Assistant Keeper of Irish Antiquities, Matt Sieven. We're going to talk a little bit about the National Museum, its role in archaeology, um, the kind of different projects that it gets involved with, and some of the practical issues as well about how you go about keeping Irish Antiquities, I suppose, how you choose what goes on display. And given the circumstances we're in right now, how does an operation like the museum, um, how does that cope with the new restrictions from COVID and so on? So we'll start perhaps with yourself, Maeve. Could you give us a little bit of background on the National Museum? When was it founded? How has it kind of developed? And since it's opened, um, are there, you know, there are different branches of the museum, so maybe we can just kind of introduce those.
1: So we're sitting here in uh, the National Museum on Kildare Street, and this building opened in na- 1890, and it was built as a museum, wow. so uh, it's been open ever since, and um, um, it's it's a really popular uh, branch of the museum. It's now one of four public branches that we have, uh, three in Dublin and Marion Street, which has the Natural History Museum, uh, Collins Barracks, which holds collections relating to decorative arts history and military history and then one in the west of Ireland, in, in Castlebar, and that's the Museum of Country Life. Yes. Fantastic.
0: And what are some of the key kind of responsibilities of the museum, apart from being a place that displays artefacts and, and interprets them? What sort
2: of work do you carry out at We'll see you with that? Um, Well, um, apart from uh, curating and uh, managing our collections, um, we also have a couple of key statutory roles. So we're involved, as um, you may be aware, all archaeological objects in Ireland which have no known owner are property of the state and therefore we have lots of uh, members of the public uh, reporting objects to us, it's uh, their obligation to report objects to us, and we go and visit the fine spots, um, we take the objects in. Um, we also deal a lot with uh, researchers uh, or family groups or individuals who are looking into objects which may their great-grandfather might have found on their land and they want to come and see them, making appointments with us looking at through files maybe for the first time, seeing uh, a distant relations handwriting and um, seeing the object and um, found that a really kind of emotionally rewarding experience. Absolutely.
0: I mean, so I guess in some ways what we see in the museum when we come to somewhere like Kildare Street is just a very, very tip of a very big iceberg I suppose.
1: Isn't it? Yeah, so we display a very uh, low percentage of our holdings. It's mm-hmm. in the something like 2% on display. To me, what a museum is, is not just the material that's on display, it's yeah. everything that's in storage and all of the work that we do to research mm-hmm. material in storage. Um, last year alone we had 116 researchers to that collection, we call it the reserve collection, mm-hmm. so um, that material is, is available for research like some of the what we would have read about to do with like research into Newgrange and ancient DNA, all of those holdings, for example, are here, all of those artefacts are here. So it's a massive part of what we do. And as Matt was saying, you know, fieldwork, we, we are out and about a lot, so we're, we're a little bit different to our colleagues in the other cultural institutions. Um, in 2019, we did fieldwork in 20 different counties around <laughs> Ireland, so that's taking us down high roads and by roads and meeting people that have found things or have an interaction with us and it's such an important part of what we do, and do it's you massively you important.
0: Oh, absolutely, and do you carry out excavations in, in some circumstances? We do,
1: we actually carry out smaller scale excavations. In mm-hmm. the past, you know, you'll know, you know that the National Museum carried out excavations in Viking and Medieval Dublin, these mm. really large scale, deep, deep excavations that turned up hundreds of thousands of artefacts. Um, we don't do anything like that anymore, but we okay. would carry out small scale excavations, So. Matt Seaver and Isabella Mulhall, for example, carried mm-hmm. out um, an excavation of an early Bronze Age, cyst burial in Donegal earlier this year, wow. just before lockdown, I think, yeah. actually.
0: Fantastic. So you get to do some of the best. Yes. <laughs> it's yeah. the as well. um, you know, I, I suppose looking at an institution that has the history that the National Museum has, obviously it's had a very changing role in society. What are some of the, kind of, the key challenges that the museum faces now at the moment?
1: As a, as a whole, I suppose, like many other cultural institutions, funding is always a challenge yeah. you know, for cultural sections of society, so mm. um, that continues to be a challenge. Um, Ireland is very, very rich in heritage, in portable heritage, so of course mm. we don't have anything like the number of curators that we would like to have yeah, okay. um, in terms of... When you compare the amount of artifacts that w- that we care for, so certainly, um, certainly funding staffing is always, and I think has always been an issue for, for the National Museum from its very yeah. inception. And um, we have vast collections of excavated material. We we, we have the fastest growing curatorial collection um, of our colleagues because of. You know these excavations are being carried out all over the country um, and so some people might not know but the national museum is the state repository for all artifacts yeah. so anything found on any of the excavations around the country ultimately comes to us um, and we have a statutory responsibility to care for it so you know so that's a fantastic thing for for a country like ireland but of course it brings its challenges too um
0: I, I can imagine because especially you know, people might think of excavations, if they're not an archaeologist in Ireland at all, the they might think of an excavation as being quite a small scale, discrete research thing, but like talking road projects, which might have 30 or 40 or more sites on each one producing, you know, artifacts ranging from, you know, the, the Mesolithic all the way up to, you know, it's, it, it's an an accruing amount that starts to get a little bit worrying. <laughs> so it is storage um, and the the capacity to kind of conserve that volume of material that it, it, that must pose a, a significant obstacle. It's
1: it's a huge it's it's the huge challenge for us as a, as the as the National Museum. So yes, storage and the pursuit of long-term you know secure storage and uh, secure in terms of environment as well as, as everything else is, is really important for us. Um, so, you know, we're working on that at the moment mm-hmm. um, in other in terms of other kinds of challenges, of course, here in Kildare Street, we have wonderful exhibitions on the ground floor and on the first floor, mm-hmm. but we don't have a lift. So um, that's something that, you know, we really need to get accessibility for all to all of our um, levels here in Kildare Street. So that's something that we hope um, during redevelopment from funding mm-hmm. through Project Ireland 2040 that we will do in right. the next while.
0: I mean, that's kind of the it's the double edged sword of having such a historic building that houses the collection, isn't it? They wasn't thinking about yes. things like that, yeah. the, you know, the Victorian kind <laughs> exactly. of period. So exactly. that'd be brilliant to make yeah. it you know yeah. make it fully accessible. And are there any kind of substantial threats outside of kind of the you know the the things we've talk about in terms of storage and curation and uh, the lack of funding? Are there any kind of direct threats at the moment to our archaeological heritage that would concern you? I mean, you often see, don't you, in the news reports uh, from the UK in particular about metal detecting, uh, mm-hmm. detecting. It is illegal here without a licence, um, but cases are on the rise, aren't they?
2: Yeah, we we have a different set of legislation in Ireland uh, where, as I said, all objects without a known owner belong to the state. Mm-hmm. and. Um, for this reason uh, the use of detection devices without a license mm. uh, or in being in possession of one at a, a monument, a protected monument mm. is illegal mm. um, and we have seen in recent years a very significant rise in uh, use of um, detection devices without a license mm. recovery of objects which belong to local communities which belong to the state yeah. um, and what we really do is we we liaise with landowners, uh, with local communities um, and we rely on their information to help track down um, some of these objects and ensure that we have good cooperation between ourselves, our colleagues in National Monuments and also Garda and we then recover objects on a regular basis um, even in the last couple of months, uh, very significant objects uh, have been recovered by, by the Museum So it's. It's, it's a lot of work but we think it's a very important um, job um, the museum has very limited resources uh, it costs large amounts of money to conserve mm-hmm. any of these objects so vast amounts of archaeological objects being kept in the back of someone's shed is, yes. isn't uh, something that we're prepared to stand by No no absolutely
0: and, and things can be lost so easily and of course for archaeologists the context is everything um, so people are just ripping out. Metal objects from, from sites without,
2: you know, proper excavation and that's, sampling and all that. That's the key thing, and and we've also seen in in recent months uh, damage to monuments uh, yeah. where people have been looking for objects, yeah. um, and you know that's that's damaging everyone's heritage. It belongs to everyone, uh, belongs to local communities. So we're hoping to take some further initiatives on that in the near future. So very good,
0: and, and just uh, just as. Uh, clarification I suppose you know when you say uh, any object that doesn't have a known owner the, there's very I, I suppose that encompasses everything the known owner I suppose has to have had it in the family for Exa- exactly, exactly exactly it? yeah it, it, it's
2: not that a metal detectorist can find it and say you know no, I own this so <laughs> oh, yeah, if, yeah. If, if it's an object you found in the ground uh, through whatever means mm-hmm. um, it belongs to the state and That's it true. needs to be reported yeah. uh, within the statutory time period well but, and Looking uh,
0: at that, let's say, you know, outside the kind of people uh, going excavating sites illegally and such, what happens if you were a farmer and you were digging a drain and you come across something that clearly looks archaeological? What's the process that would you do then?
1: Well, it happens all the time, actually, That and Matt has a very good story about a farmer digging a drain that he'll tell you now in a second. <laughs> it was one of his first here in his career in the museum. But um, generally speaking, we ask people to report artifacts to the National Museum as soon as possible, so you can do that by phone, um, by email, mm-hmm. you can go to our website and find the contact form, So, and the reason for it really is that some are well, there are many reasons, but you can have organic artefacts that just won't survive very long out yeah. of their environment. So it's it's yeah. really important that we get to investigate the fine spot, yeah. the circumstances. And again, like we were saying, that's something that we don't have the opportunity to do if objects are being dug out of the ground, for example, by a metal detectorist. Yeah. So you will lose all of the associated organic material, all of the context, all of the layers, yeah. if that happens. So so yeah, so we, we're a very... Um, you know, open staff, and we're very, very happy to receive reports of discovery. And even if you're not 100% sure that what you have mm-hmm. is an artifact, we're more than happy to talk to anyone to receive photographs. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, we had an awful lot of really good contact during the COVID 19. Uh, shut down with people who were out and about who were noticing things Mm -hmm. and who were reporting to us so you know it it can be a really in in most cases it's a really positive experience i think for people and for us too um, and to report things Um, and and yeah
0: the the example um was that the one up in Donegal.
1: yeah
2: so like you know we we'd be dealing with objects and You know, it could be coins, it could be uh, belt buckles, it could be, you know, objects uh, which you might consider very mundane but when reported to us, you know, a lot of them can be genuine archaeological objects and as Maeve said, that's, you know, a really important part of what we do. But in this specific instance, in um, 2018, we had a report from a, a farmer. Uh, he rang me. I was the duty officer, so that's the person you'd report it to in, in the National Museum. You'd email or ring and ask for the duty officer. So they they rang and asked for the duty officer, and he said he'd found some gold rings, mm-hmm. um, and I the, we tend not to get too excited at first because sometimes when the photographs come in of the object, you go, "Okay, it's maybe you know something uh, a, a bronze ring, a copper alloy finger ring, something like that." Yeah. So we'd wait for the photographs to come in, ask people to email the photographs, so they email the photographs, um, and when I so we had a bit of difficulty exchanging emails, I clicked on the image. And these four, and I, I, I kind of had to do a double take at the screen. <laughs> and then I rang uh, Maeve um, and our new director happened to be in the office at the time. Mm. And, uh, you know, we were just absolutely over the moon because what this person had reported, what this farmer had reported was the discovery of these four very heavy gold uh, penannular rings oh. uh, dating from the Bronze Age uh, in his field lovely. in a drain and he did exactly the right thing he he had taken them to a friend who was a jeweler and she reported them back uh, and she immediately recognized that these objects uh, were likely to be bronze age and uh, she advised him to ring the museum so and and we had a fantastic uh, as as the, the the landowner said himself it was a blessing on him and his family that's the way he considered it and you know the, the relationship between the museum and himself mm-hmm. and the county in Donegal and the county museum it was just a really lovely example of how a, a set of objects can kind of really enhance a locality mm-hmm. and kind of became a national and even international news story. Because yeah. so uh, they went on display didn't they in the county museum? They w- yeah we, we, uh, we bought them, they were unknown to the county museum they're on display now in um, uh, Prehistoric Ireland in the gallery um, so yeah, they're, they're you know a great addition to the collection and uh, you know just an example of of really uh, good community involvement yeah, in an absolutely. object. Absolutely,
0: I mean, and imagine the, the bragging rights is probably <laughs> doing, not doing, uh, a service enough, but being able to say to your family, I found that, you know, Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, and we we know.
2: had uh, we had an evening in the museum, and there were, uh, the entire townland was in that room and, you know, just the, a really, really good feeling.
0: That's you know? fantastic. It yeah. really is. It, it, it's a great example of, uh, you know, how it all works out when the right things. Totally yeah. It, it's yeah. a
1: very, um, I think it's a very Irish thing, and it's a very yeah. special part of the relationship we have with finders, because, mm-hmm. as Matt was saying, particularly in the summer, you'll get families coming in, and they will have come in to see an artefact that their grandfather found, you know, and it could be. And we always try and get it for them and show them, and show them the archive. so should we keep all the correspondence from the finder between them and the museum. And it's a really special part of what the National Museum is to, to local communities and it's something we're very keen to preserve because it's, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's just It's, just it's just almost
0: unique isn't it, you know, you can become part of a bigger national story in a sense yeah. by, by yeah. doing that, I, I think it's fantastic. I suppose since we planned this podcast, you know, back in late February, I think it was originally, um, the world's become a little different. Um, you know, COVID nineteen it's had you know impact. I suppose on on all aspects of Irish life, and particularly when it comes to public spaces, uh, and of course the National Museum is one of the key ones of those. How has it affected you here? Like, uh, what? How has it affected the? I suppose you as a staff and visitors. Um, perhaps you as as staff, first, to you,
1: maybe, and then we'll talk. Yeah, it had a massive impact, and actually we were to record that podcast on the day that we closed, to the public, I think, (laughs) which was was just so strange. Um, So yeah, we closed our doors, and you know, you you can't mothball a national collection in the way you might think, so we still had a presence in Mm -hmm. here, um, odd days, and we were trying to do some work from home as well. So yeah, so we haven't actually all been together as a de- department, the Antiquities Division, mm-hmm. since February, wow. which is weird, so we are meeting on, like everyone else, yeah. on video calls yeah, yeah. Um, and trying to keep up, you know, in that way, but it's, it's very strange, and it's very difficult to be a curator not being near your collections, you know? Yeah. Um, you can do certain things, but you can't really do this job. At a distance. No. So we've been sort of feeling our way through it, like like everybody else. Um, and yeah. we 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 are doing field work now, so we're out meeting finders again, just using, you know, basic COVID nineteen protocols mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. observing all of the of the advice that, that is there. And yeah. um, but yeah, it's had it's had a huge impact on, on us as a as a staff and as a museum in general.
0: Yeah. And, and what's that impact like been for visitors, What kind of steps have been into
2: place here? Um, well visitor wise we have um, you know a lot of measures in place for social distancing, mm. uh, hand washing, we have a, a one-way system, uh, we have limited numbers in certain galleries and um, we're lucky in a way with the layout of this particular building because of its very high ceilings yeah. and that it's you know one of the, one of the better uh, buildings really for, for um, mm for social distancing and and COVID protection. Um, But uh, obviously the staff are are wearing uh, face protection and regular hand washing once we're in the public areas. Um, And we've, you know, reconfigured office space, things like that to help um, ensure that, you know, we're keeping within the protocols. I mean, it, it it must kind of add, it was
0: always, anytime I was here before, it was always, Crowds, you know, big groups of visitors coming in. I suppose from things like coach trips and cruise ships and all of that kind of thing. Um, how have you seen kind of people reacting Are people coming back into the museum and levels or a, a, a much different world?
1: There's a lot less because we have limits, so I think, yeah. um, and people are booking online, so there are a lot okay. less. And the cruise ships, for sure. We would have seen them come in language students oh. they would have all visited here so yeah. we're not seeing them yes. um but we are seeing people come back and and enjoying themselves i think around around the museum maybe it's a little bit more of a meaningful visit for some people because mm. it's not so frantic you know yeah um, you so i think your that's time. been yeah yeah has been that's been good um, and while we were closed, we did have the chance then to, to do a massive deep clean. So, <laughs> so actually, you know, staff here in Kildare Street were, if you had been in, we were crawling in and out of cases and under cases. Yeah, <laughs> and, I've never um, seen it look so sparkly, yeah. the other things <laughs> Yeah So particularly our, our Con- Carol Smith in our conservation department, she, she had you know, got into places that hadn't been looked at for years, wow. um, and you know, inside cases, outside cases, the whole lot. Yeah. We did a massive, massive job. So, in in some way, that was actually quite a good thing for mm-hmm. for the collections um, that we were able to. You'd never get that chance. No, know, it could.
0: Yeah, that's the thing. You would never be able because you used to be the normal thing. Used to be that the museum used to be closed on a Monday. Although yeah. I think that changed this yes. this yeah. year. Um, but you'd never get the time to be able to do That level of maintenance work, and, and it's so important to do that yes. as well. You know. yeah. um, but there's a really nice, I've got to say, you know, it's the first time I've been in the museum obviously since all of this happened, and there's a really nice buzz there. You know, you can see people spending a little longer looking at these iconic things like the Breuter Auden, yeah, and all cool. of these that normally there's a bit of a crowd around, so you can, you know, you have to kind of swerve. But so long as people book online, that's the thing, isn't it? Um, yeah, the, the, they'll be able to come in, and is that the same for the other institutions as well?
1: It is. So we have we leave some spaces for people who have just dropped in. Mm, okay. But um, generally, if you we would encourage people to book online. But it's mm-hmm. yeah, it's the same for uh, natural history, and then the other two sites because there is a lot more space. Mm-hmm. It's a walk-in basis only. So for Collins Barracks and for. The Museum of Country Life. You can you can still just walk in. You can still do. Yeah. that's fantastic.
0: Um, no, I've got to say I missed the place. <laughs> <laughs> but I suppose one of the things we're, we're hoping to talk about today is a new exhibition that's just in the process of being put together for um, Glenda Locke. Can Mark? Can you tell us because you used to work at exactly. Glendarloch. You you had the opportunity to excavate there, and of the course, the very first episode of Amplified Archaeology. I was had the chance to talk to. Connor and Graham the, and the team about the exhibition I was very jealous mean <laughs> you don't often get the chance to be a place like that um, could you tell us a little bit about this exhibition how did it come about and what sort of experience do you think a, a visitor will have
2: um well the exhibition we're calling it Glendalough power prayer and pilgrimage okay. and it came about um, as you mentioned I did work uh, as part of the excavation team on a range of different seasons and different sites in, in Glendalough in the valley. Mm-hmm. I'm also um, a, a researcher within early medieval archaeology mm-hmm. um, so obviously I a great affinity with, with Glendalough um, and uh, we were putting on an educational um, series of lectures for the general public in the Culture Club Uh, which is a lovely experience, Uh, a a group of people coming in and having coffee and looking at some objects and then having a talk about Mm -hmm. um, research in the valley and as I did that I started putting um, research terms into our database and looking at objects which we had in our collection Mm -hmm. which had been reported from Glendalough in the past and then thinking about objects which had been found during excavations um, and then combining them with objects from earlier excavations uh, like those by Francois Henri, uh, which were also done by uh, for University College Dublin back in the 1950s mm-hmm. so it was it was a way of, of linking um, the object narrative of the site mm-hmm. things coming from portable objects with the already known history of the buildings yeah. and then what the excavation was telling us in terms of uh, new features and uh, things that we didn't know about before on the site. So mm. I thought the objects were telling us a, a kind of a complementary story. That's really interesting. I, I suppose one
0: of the um, big challenges when you're looking at a site like Lindalock, which, which is such a rich story covering centuries, how do you choose what goes on display and what doesn't? What's the kind of what's the curation process? Like? How how do you tell the story?
2: So, what what we we were lucky that a, a number of things coincided at the time. Um, we received a number of of um, uh, donations, including a very early um, iron handbell from the Diocese of Dublin, mm-hmm. um, from the Archbishop. Um, so a number of things came together, which which would make for. Uh, really nice uh, exhibition, really nice viewing, mm-hmm. um, so we are using the exhibition space which formerly held the exhibition about uh, Roger Casement, okay. um, which is a relatively small space, um, so we had, as you say, to be selective in, in what objects we used. So we use a selection of objects, which some of which are ecclesiastical, like mm-hmm. um, the handbell, the earliest rope-rung bell uh, also in uh, Ireland, which is wow. an 11th century bell, also found in Glendalough. Um, a plaster cast um, of, a, of a lintel uh, over the doorway in the priest's house, which was made and um, given to the museum by uh, um, Oscar Wilde's father. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, then a selection of uh, smaller objects from the excavations. Mm-hmm. Um, so. In this space, uh, it's on the ground floor, so it's accessible to um, people with mobility difficulties. Mm -hmm. Um, We have to think about the amount of text that we can put up at any Mm -hmm. one time, and the size of that text, Mm -hmm. and how accessible that text then is to everyone. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you have to boil down what it is you want to say, um, even though you have it in your head, into a a very small space with images. It's not um,
0: easy, is it? I and mean, you've got to kind of tell a big story in maybe about two hundred words or something. That's <laughs> yeah, yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's a tough proposition. Yeah. and especially as I say, with a site like Glendalock, which just has such a big tale to tell. Um, but it's fantastic, I think, to have an, a, an exhibition in the museum which includes such kind of recently excavated material. You know, normally there's, you know, naturally kind of unless it's something like. Unbelievable. There's normally quite a lag, isn't there, between something being excavated and actually going on display. Um, Do you think that's something that the museum will do more of, maybe? Or do you think this is a special case with it being such an iconic
1: site? We would like to. So we had a plan anyway to put an exhibition on of recent acquisitions because we had, you know, we were talking about Tolly Donald, but every year, like we have. I think last year we had 160 something mm-hmm. acquisitions from different parts of the country. And okay. um, so there's and with every one of those there's a story, you know, yeah. there's a, a personal story. So we wanted to we wanted to do that in any case, and um, but it was really sort of fortuitous that Matt had done some research on Glendalock mm-hmm. um, and this whole idea then of connecting the place with the artifacts. So mm. you know, sometimes when you come to the museum you, you tend to forget like that all of these artifacts were once the Ardide Chalice was once in a, in a fort in, in Limerick, you know, in Ri Rasta, um, Darina Flan, things like that. So they sometimes get a little bit divorced from their context. Yeah. So that was something that um, Matt had mentioned and I think is really important. And it, it'll be really nice to see how that works out because it's been a very collaborative project between um, the local heritage forum in Glendalough um, mm. and a whole range of other bodies including national monuments and the heritage council and heritage officers and yeah. it's probably some more as well that yeah. I've put out there that i would mention. I mean that's one of the things talking to
0: to Graham and Connor and, and the team there that you kind of really saw was that with a site like that it, it it's so it needs such a big broad collaborative suite between the communities national parks and wildlife they're yes. involved the opw yeah. involved and yourselves obviously national monuments and that's i think they're always the most it's a lot of hard work initially to kind of get everyone yeah. you know sitting down together and, uh, and working in the same direction but when that happens like it's happened there, it produces astonishing results i think it's a really good model for a lot of cases around the country really yeah, I mean,
2: it may, not, it may not always translate into a, a physical exhibition. Mm. It could be a curated narrative online involving local groups. Um, but it's putting together stories that matter to communities with objects from their communities uh, so that it could be from diverse sources. Uh, for instance, in Glendalough, one of the objects is a leather shoe, found wow. by a hill walker which we managed to get a radiocarbon date for. We know it's a, a woman's shoe um, and we can think of this woman walking, you know, maybe across the Wicklow Gap in the 10th century um, oh, and, is. you know, so it's, it's, it's you know, uh, it's that way of connecting uh, actions in the past, the physical landscape and the finders in, in the present. So, I, yeah. I,
0: I, no, I think it, it's brilliant and you mentioned a couple of them, uh, Martin, uh, perhaps, Maybe uh, you might um, introduce a couple more as well. It just what's the kind of general principles, if you like, when you're considering exhibitions? Um, what sort of things do you need to think about when when you first?
1: That's a good question. Mm-hmm. So you you start out, in my experience, with a with a list of artifacts. So how <laughs> and the way you arrive at that, you you know, it's through. Col- conversations mm-hmm. with the conservation department, you know, what's suitable for display, mm-hmm. what can things be di- displayed side-by-side, side, you know, some artifacts hate the light, other ones need yes. to be um, highlighted, so there's loads of different considerations like that mm-hmm. um, to, to be to be thought of, you know, whether, whether the objects are, you know, whether we have a date for them, like Matt mentioned about the shoe. Sometimes mm-hmm. you will get obtain a series of radiocarbon dates in advance of an exhibition so you know what you know you can, you can exactly yeah, yeah you can yeah. tell your story so um, often we would do a, do an exhibition thematically we try and broadly stick mm. to chronological you know lines a lot of the time mm. um, but it does depend i suppose you know on on the sort of themes on what you're talking about yeah. um,
0: yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's a really interesting, because kind of everything's a matter of decisions, you can't show everything, you know, yeah. that's the thing, yeah. so uh, it's interesting to see different approaches, even in here actually, you know, when you go into something like um, the Treasury, you've got such a broad sweep of history that it's kind of best of the best in a lot of (laughs) ways, it lives up to its thing quite well. Um, But then you've got your more, it's good as well to complement that with more specific ones, say like the Viking exhibition or something where you can really kind of immerse yourself in the period and the material culture. Um, You know, I I suppose, we've mentioned it a couple of uh, times as well, I think accessibility is increasingly important, isn't it, and trying to, this has an international audience here, It has you would see little kids coming in, you'll yes. see older people coming in. How do you try to pitch the information that you're given in a way that is accessible to
2: everyone? Well, with, with this exhibition and, and the others that we plan, we work closely with uh, other departments within the mm. museum, like the education department, okay. who, um, you know, go carefully through the text, uh, look at um, terms that perhaps we're very used to uh, talking about as whether we're academics or, or curators, um, that the public might not be familiar with. And then, you'd also have to be familiar with the cultural context. Um, for instance, this is a, an ecclesiastical site, a Christian site, um, so you need to explain certain terms and make sure that, um, no matter uh, what faith or uh, culture the person's coming from, that they may get an appreciation uh, of the, the kind of depth and wealth of objects which come from this site.
0: Absolutely, you no, there's so many different aspects to yeah. this. it. It yeah. really is, you know. I suppose like, you know, looking back at kind of the old Victorian or antiquarian kind of cabinets of curiosities, mm-hmm. they kind of had it easy in a way, didn't they? It's like, here's all cool stuff, all <laughs> <right>. <laughs> but, but now you've got so much to think about. Yeah.
1: Just a good example of that was, you mentioned the Treasury Exhibition, and there we had the reason for the redisplay of the Treasury was the discovery of the Fadden Morris Altar, oh, yes. which was very you know, organic object that couldn't um, tolerate high light levels at all, so we had this challenge of displaying all of the very shiny, you know, early medieval treasures like the Arda Chalice and the Tar Brooch, and then bringing people into quite a dark room Mm. to explain the story of the Fadden Moor Psalter, its discovery, why it was important, Um, and the challenge there was that the Psalter itself doesn't look, after looking at the Arda Chalice, it's Brown. it's dark, it's mm-hmm. fragmented, yeah. um, but the story it, it has to tell is so important. But the challenge there was to bring people from that very bright, glittering, colourful gallery into a dark space and explain why. You know? yes. So we did that with a silent movie um, on the wall just before you see the object but that was, a, that was a massive challenge and that was, I suppose, a design and interpretive solution that came out of lots of meetings and discussions. Well,
0: that, that's a, a really interesting thing, isn't it? Because often it's not necessarily the glitziest object that has the biggest tale to tell, you know, and, and that must be, an ongoing challenge. challenging. I suppose on the subject of kind of wetland finds, obviously Ireland has some of the best <laughs> in the world, um, the Kingship and Sacrifice exhibition, I always find that to be, thats although it's not necessarily my kind of focus period, I'm a bit of an omnivore anyway, I don't really have one, um, but I find that to be one of the best exhibitions here, it's probably my favourite one, and I think part of the reason for that is it's very sensitively done. You know, bulk bodies, um, it's something Ireland obviously has in bigger quantity, if you like, are some of the finer examples in Europe. But quite often when you see human remains, I mean, even take the British Museum, you know, they're just out there. But I really like the way that there's a little... It's more intimate, It's kind of almost like a booth that you go into, kind of thing. Was there a deliberate kind of focus on the display of, you know, the way to display human remains? What was the kind of conversation like that was leading into setting out that exhibition thing?
1: So that was my colleagues uh, Eamon Kelly and mm-hmm. Isabella Mulhall who mm-hmm. curated that and they worked with an architect, Barbara Kenny mm-hmm. who was, um, she's since retired but in the Office of Public Works and she, she was a brilliant designer mm-hmm. and all of the considerations at that time were for the um, dignity of the human remains yeah. so it's a, it was a huge part of that and it actually influenced the whole design of that exhibition mm-hmm. so um, the idea and you, they raise the floor level so that you can walk down into those pods. So when you, when you walk in, um, you're going down um, slightly at a level. Um, and the whole design of it was was around, you know, there's no text anywhere near the body. Yeah. You know, they're treated as people. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so that was really, really important. It was probably the most important aspect of that whole... Um, gallery, and I think it's worked quite well because you can, you can walk through the whole space without seeing any human remains, which some people do. You know, they don't yeah. really want to see them, no, um, but it. they can learn all about them. And
0: yeah, because you you often see, um, you know, it is such an issue, isn't it, the ethical treatment uh, of human and, and you know, I suppose it's important to remember that they were people. And you, it's one of the few museum exhibitions, I think, that you, you get that sense, that you want to treat it as people. So, um, you know, I always like to, to go in and see that. Um, I suppose going back to the Glenda Lock one for the moment, when does the exhibition
2: open, Martin?
0: When is it kind of running to, do you think?
2: So, it's going to open in mid-September. Um, and it'll be both in the museum itself and then we will have an extensive uh, area on our web page where there'll be a lot of additional information, links um, and a gallery of objects and other objects that we couldn't put on display. Yeah. Um, so from mid-September and then for at least a couple of years. Oh, fantastic.
0: And actually, you know, the, the online aspect is obviously with the, the, uh, the shutdown and everything, that became such an enormous you know, focus, really, didn't it? And, you know, Museum's launched this new website, I think it was terrific. Is that going to be something that you, um,
2: is going to be a primary concern going forward, do you think, uh, mass or? um Yeah, um, I, I, I think um, the curation of uh, the online collections is going to be a big uh, feature of the future. Mm. Um, and also things like, um, we have uh, virtual views of certain galleries within the museum which we've been populating with for instance the Viking Gallery now has yeah. attached labelling so you can um, have an experience of the content of the gallery without actually coming to the gallery obviously you get a lot more coming to the gallery itself but um, the, it allows you to, to, to view and, and then maybe to base um, educational exercises on it and that kind of thing And yeah. there's a lot of scope for linking then into further object detail in the future Brilliant, that's fantastic. I, here's a bit of a kind of random question, I suppose.
0: What happens, like when you've got a temporary exhibition like the Glendalock what happens after the exhibition? Would would all well, the objects go to then? Um, do they go back into storage or do they go to the visitor the centre, let's say, in Glendalock, Or what, what's the plan generally? Either one of you can answer that one. It's a good question. Yeah. Um, if for,
1: in general, for things like the Battle of Clontarf exhibition that's on mm. the first floor. A lot of those objects are taken out of medieval Ireland and Viking Ireland, so they'll go back into okay. those exhibitions. <laughs> um, for Glendalough, we'd we, we'll like to see that running for a good few years yeah. before we decide what, what we'll do. Yeah. I think it'll be really popular. So yeah. at the moment, with our current guidelines, only four people or a family group will be allowed into that room. So okay. obviously we'd, we'd have loved that to be packed full of people at the beginning, so yeah. we wanted to run long enough that Everyone people can see. experience it and enjoy it. Um, mm. Afterwards we'll, we'll see. I mean, we, we have a loan of material to the visitor centre at Lendalock already mm. so there's some material of ours there. So yeah, we'll, we'll think about that when the time comes around. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> and like,
0: I, I, I always put people on the spot uh, you know, so I apologise for that. Uh, what, you know, looking at this massive collection that we have of the objects yeah. that's on display, do you have a particular personal pet favourite that every time you see, it? You're like, ah, I love that one?
1: yes and no, I suppose. <laughs> like we, you know, every time you you handle objects like mm. um, at close contact, like the Tara brooch, which I did just a few weeks ago when we were oh. taking we took it off display to clean the case. Like, it's impossible to say that wasn't one of my favourite objects yeah, because they're just so incredible and. Yeah. You could spend hours just looking at them, and in fact, we don't. We're always running past to do something yes. else. Yeah. Um. But from a personal experience point of view, I suppose Moore would be very mm. close to my heart because I uh, was involved in the excavation of the site, oh, cool. yeah, um, cool. and was on site yeah. the day that, you know, the rest of the National Museum staff were there looking at it, and, um, just that experience and, yeah. um, and again, like dealing with that, the Podge and Kevin Leonard, the the two finders, was. I'll never forget it, you know, 2006, it's just like you can't believe you're paid to do that job (laughs) at times, you know, it's just amazing.
0: That's magic, Uh, that's often, um, you know, it's something I always find really interesting is that kind of biography of how it ended up here, you know, it would be lovely I think to. Maybe it's something for the museum to consider itself, kind of doing a, a podcast series or something like that on yeah. a object biographies like or something. Like that. Absolutely. And
2: how about yourself, Matt? Yeah. Well, as at. Maeve said, it, it it changes every week because yeah. we're you know constantly we'll get research requests coming in and mm-hmm. we'll be um, talking about an object that we maybe going down into the crypt, opening up some of the drawers in in storage and seeing objects come to life which uh, you mightn't have encountered before. You know and and uh, rapidly becoming your favorite but at the moment and I'm going to pick something from the Glendalough exhibition because again like Maeve I have a personal association with it which is the the tiny jet cross oh, it's um yeah, yeah which comes probably from Whitby or York um in England and I was there the day it was found um and uh, I saw the the delight on the on the finder's face when he uh, Cormac when he picked it out of the sieve. Yeah. Uh, this tiny, tiny object uh, found in soil being thrown out of a bucket into a sieve um, and then having these links between uh, personal piety this tiny object traveling across the, the and Norse sea routes across to Dublin and probably into Glendalough uh, and then from that to putting it on focus in our exhibition which is going to look at uh, the, the uh, long distance links between multiple different objects, uh, and Dandeloch, and so that that story between an object being found, being carefully recorded, and then coming into us and being put on display, it just you know, it, it it's layer upon layer of, of meaning. Yes, so, absolutely. Yeah. I think they're both terrific examples, and you know, like yourselves, I think. Like.
0: Personal favourite changes every week, you know. One day it's something from the Viking collection, but uh, I do like the mouth May said that every time you see it, you're just like, oh, it's such yeah. a magic little yeah. thing. And just because cool. I can't work out how it was made, you know, it's so <laughs> beyond experience. But I really want to thank you both uh, for uh, taking the time to talk to me. I think it's fascinating, and then, you know, hopefully, obviously, this golf thing doesn't last forever and yeah. everyone will get the opportunity to come in. But while there's yeah even while it's going on, you know, as we've said, you still can come in and see these exhibitions. Um, The Glendale Art one opens in September and it's a really nice feel in the museum at the moment. You do get a bit more time to have a look at objects and such. I think it's a fantastic experience. So thank you all um, for uh, talking to me today and, and thanks everyone for listening.